And we are live. We are live. Yeah. So far we have one viewer. And if they'd like to say hi, feel free to drop that in the comments so we can see who and where you are. Um, so we'll wait a couple minutes as per usual with the way of the world. Anytime you start a meeting now on Zoom or you go on live, it's like, okay, we're gonna wait a few minutes <laughs> just to see. I have time. We're on lockdown. I have nowhere to go. Yeah, definitely. And we're about to start a month-long lockdown. Um, I'm yeah, I saw that. Yeah. No, the way of the world is that, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what to do with this virus. And I think um, as countries deal with spikes and surges and lulls, uh, I think uh, until a vaccine is introduced that everybody's comfortable with, you know, we're just going to have to deal with this back and forth, you know? All right. So to all of you that are viewing, once again, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Siren Sundays. I'm Lashanti, and my wonderful guest today is Eric Carey, the executive director of the Bahamas National Trust. I know he's not very popular, so hopefully he'll be able oh. to tell you guys <laughs> who he is. Um, on this show. Uh, it is November and I definitely was so happy that I was able to kick off my favorite month of the year with you, Eric. I think this is going to be a great episode. I look forward to everyone tuning in, being very interactive. Hello, Haley and Elijah. And we'll get going. This episode is about protected areas and national parks in the mm -hmm. Bahamas. I know a couple of people asked me, you know, why are you saying protected areas and national parks. And that is one of the things that we're definitely gonna to answer today. So Eric, if you can just tell the lovely people who you are, give them a bit of the experience that you've had working in the Bahamas and even with protected areas and national parks over the time that you've been working. Yeah, Ashanti, uh, first off, huge congratulations to you for having uh, completed your master's. I know it's something that you wanted to do and um, your entire BNT family are really justly proud of you. And um, who knows where the world, wh what, where this takes you, uh, but um, we know that you're going to have a net positive impact on conservation on the planet. And so I just wanted to state first that we are really so very proud of you uh, for what you've been able to achieve. Both you, of course, and Lindy. I don't want Lindy to get upset with me. Um, but we are proud of you as your, your colleagues here at the BNT. Mm -hmm. So I'm Eric Carey. I'm the executive director of the Bahamas National Trust. I've been with the BNT um, since uh, nearly 20 years. Um, and uh, before that, I worked in conservation with the government uh, back then when there were really very few people. In fact, I, I was responsible for terrestrial conservation at the Department of Agriculture and a very well-known individual, Eleanor Phillips, was responsible for marine conservation at the department, then the Department of Fisheries. Um, and we both left the public service actually in 2003. I went uh, to the BNT to manage a project uh, called the Parks Partnership Project. The main objective of that was to establish the first um, management plan for a national park, which was the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park. Eleanor left shortly after to head up the Bahamas program of the Nature Conservancy. So 
Um, for the past 20 years, I have been at the BNT and um, initially worked as a, as a project manager for a particular project and then moved into the BNT proper. Um, uh, I think I became the parks officer and then the director of parks. And I think since about 2007, I've had the distinct uh, privilege of serving as the BNT's executive director. So I have had a, I think, a long and, and storied uh, career. Uh, we've had to build a lot of things that didn't exist. We've had to figure out a lot. And um, as I now prepare to make my exit from the scene, um, I um really pleased at, at what we've been able to achieve to achieve nationally the capacity we've been able to build the partnerships we've established and i think um the underpinning of what is an, an uncertain but certainly very important future for our country so i've been really pleased to have been a part of that i've certainly had the opportunity to work with people like uh, Lashanti, uh, as part of the my experience in the Bahamas National Trust, and I'm very proud of all of the linkages that we've built over the years um, that took us to this point. Definitely, uh, I feel like you just snuck that in there when you said on your oh. exit. You're the second person who makes this like profound announcement of a ending on my show. Yeah. I hope that wasn't like a a wink wink. <laughs> To the public. No, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been here for t nearly 20 years. And, you know, the things, you know, the thing that you and I always discussed is that I'm always very in interested in young people developing themselves. Uh, I have been working for 20 years to build my, to create my replacement. Um, so whether it was through the Kirtland's Wobbler training and research project, project that, that sent 10 Bahamians to the university, or whether working with any number of other initiatives like the uh, internship at the Leon Levy Native Plant Preserve, or whether it's through some of the projects that I've worked on with people like Lakeisha, Shelley, and Portia, it's exposing young Bahamians to the opportunities in conservation uh, so that as they thought about, you know, what should I think about as my career? I wanted them to realize that there was an opportunity to be the executive director of the Bahamas National Trust. And uh, that is something that, as I think about um, my movement to the sunset, um, um, I think that there are any number of persons who are well qualified to move into positions of leadership, whether it's at the BNT or Brief or the Nature Conservancy, or working with uh, Rochelle at the Department of uh, the Environment and uh, Department of Environmental Planning and Protection. There are incredible opportunities uh, for Bahamians to work in this field. And for me, that is what it has been about, creating these opportunities so that the young Bahamians who, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, when Bahamians came to Eleanor and I asking about, you know, should we, should we study marine science or environmental science? We really weren't sure of whether we should encourage them to study marine science or whether we should uh, let them follow what their parents wanted them to be, which were lawyers, doctors. You know, if you were in the if you were in this science field, 
the thing to do was to become a medical doctor because you could have a financially rewarding career. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't always a clear path to a good career in conservation. I think one of the things that both Eleanor and I are very proud of over this past 20 years or so is that we've created these opportunities so that so many people, as they think about what they want to do, as they move out of high school into whether it's the University of the Bahamas or whether they go abroad or whether they, whether they uh, take on a master's program in conservation leadership, that they know that there are these opportunities that present themselves to be able to make a contribution to our country uh, through some of the the foundations that both of us have, have established, you know? Definitely. I'm glad you said that because I remember um, growing up, I wasn't really quite sure what the BNT was, you know, and and I was always really good at science and it was always go be a doctor. And all I knew BNT was, was that place on Village Road with all the trees. I had done a flip there when I was younger. And and if you could just quickly, you know, talk about the fact that the BNT has grown and it has become this hub along with the other organizations that it works with for young conservationists to actually come back home and have an opportunity like myself. Like I never imagined how my life would take such a turn simply from working at the Bahamas National Trust. And it's something I'm grateful about, obviously. But quickly tell us, like, how has the BNT grown over the years in regards to um, its work in conservation? So it's really important that people understand the whole context of the organization and its history. Um, mm-hmm. You know, before I got here 20, 25, 20 plus years ago, and before that, um, you know, there were people like, um, you know, Mrs. Lynn Holowesco, you know, your Basil Kellys, um, you know, your Pericles, Malises, Glenn Bannisters. <clears throat> These were people involved in leadership at the organization. And they were ta- they were trying to figure out how do they create from, you know, what was established in 1959 as a vision for conservation to a functional organization that manages our countries, an important component of our country's protected area system. And so building on what people like Mrs. Holowesco and others had laid down and people like Pericles had laid down, by the time as I came to the BNT in 2000, well, actually, I I got introduced to the BNT when I was still an employee of the Department of Agriculture as a conservation officer. And I participated in the, what was then called the, um, the Wildlife Committee. And the Wildlife Committee is really the precursor of your, your Shelley's, Bradley, Scott's, and Giselle's, Lindy's, um, you know, Lashanti's, Lakeisha's, Chantal's. I mean, basically, these were volunteers that sat on a committee to try to help an organization figure out what type of advice it should give to the government. Uh, when I joined the BNT in 2003, I think there were maybe seven or eight employees and uh, as such, for a national park management agency, uh, it was not as viable as it needed to be. But there were a lot of very dedicated volunteers who were committed 100% to trying to do what they could to advance the objectives of the Bahamas National Trust. And so I joined the organization and I joined at a time when there was a strong interest in building capacity. So what brought me to the BNT was the Parks Partnership Project, which was funded by the Bacardi family, the Nature Conservancy, 
and uh, the BNT and this tripartite arrangement uh, brought me on to start building capacity for national park management. Um, a couple of years later, the organization had started to evolve and there was an opportunity for me to get involved in leadership. And when I became executive director of the BNT, I guess in about 2007, you know, we may have had 10 employees. <clears throat> I knew then that this was not an organization that could take us where we needed to go to manage which were the units of conservation and protected areas, national parks, that's what they are. They are the units of conservation. They protect the biodiversity. You know, we can talk about that a little bit later. But we did not have we did not have the capacity to do to take us to where we needed to go. And so as I took over, I remember when I became executive director and learning about um, the huge mandate of what I had taken on. It was very daunting. In fact, I remember coming home and telling my wife that I'm not really sure what I've just gotten into having been offered the opportunity. But there were people like, um, you know, Pericles and people like um, uh, Mrs. Holoesco and there were people like Mr. Manuel Cotillas from the Bacardi family, um, people like Eleanor and others from the Nature Conservancy who understood the potential for the Bahamas National Trust and who had committed to helping to help this organization realize its full potential. And so we started raising money and Every dollar that we raise, we put into people, we put into capacity. So I remember in the early years, you know, having discussions with, you know, very astute board members, some of whom felt that, you know, perhaps we should grow more slowly. My view was we needed to grow quickly because if we didn't grow, we couldn't be effective. You know, it's like, you know, if you, if you really need 10 hands and 10 toes to be functional, um, if you don't get to that point, then you won't ever be functional. And the, you know, the six fingers, you know, the, if the ten, 10 fingers and, and the 10 toes, if you ended up with six fingers and three toes, then those people who are working in those positions are really going to be worked really nearly to death and they won't be able to do what they have to do. So fortunately, we had the support of visionary board members that understood that we needed to invest as much as we could into the development of capacity. And so for me, it was really important to build capacity to Bahamas National Trust. And so we started building divisions. So the parks divisions got created, you know, the education division, you know, the science and policy division, uh, development and fundraising. You know, we started building these, these divisions within the organization and every division created opportunities for young Bahamians to move into Credible, satisfying jobs. You know, I had fortunately such dedicated staff members. You know, your Porsche Sweetings, your Shelly Cans, your Lynn Gapes, you know, uh, of course, the uber dedicated Lakeisha Anderson, um, and, you know, your David Knowles is, you know, I, I get into trouble as I start calling names. But all of these individuals were, I think they bought into the vision that I was putting forward. And uh, we started 
Um, but, well, one, one important thing for us in building this capacity was to convince the government of the Bahamas that the National Trust was not this little private club on Village Road, uh, right. that the National Trust was the national park system of the Bahamas and the needed government support. So with the support of successive administrations, uh, you know, both the Ingram administration and the Christie administration and, and cabinet ministers and permanent secretaries within those administrations, we were able to convince the government that the BNT needed support. And once we started getting the support of government at the level of a million dollars a year, up to what we now at 1.5, then we're able to support a capacity of staff that were dedicated to um, making the organization work, doing the core work. Now, of course, we also committed to philanthropic fundraising. Uh, we committed to providing or finding funding to support science. Uh, we committed to support to finding funding to support park infrastructure. You would have been involved, obviously. I mean, what brought you from uh, Dolphin Encounters to the BNT was, um, you know, funding from an organization, Oceans Five, that really believed that this this organization, the BNT, working with partners like the Nature Conservancy and Brief, were poised for beginning leadership of transforming uh, the national park system, the protected area system, into something which will underpin the sustainable future of our country. So it's been a long and storied existence. It's been up and down. It's been scary at times. You know, we've had many Decembers where I've had to say to our CFO, where are we going to find the money to pay the payroll? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, we had the uh, the government and people like Shelby White and the Leon Levy Foundation and the Nature Conservancy and Oceans Five and uh, more more Bahamas that said this organization that you've started to build is developing an indispensability. It is developing a reputation of being able to deliver. It's developing a reputation of being really important to the sustainability of our country. And as such, we all, whether it's the government or the Leon Levy Foundation or the Moore Bahamas for the Foundation or Chuck and, and Adrian at Oceans 5, they were understanding that this was an organization that needed support and they stepped up to the plate until people like Eleanor Phillips, um, uh, Shanique Aubrey, uh, the Nature Conservancy, uh, they started building us in and writing us into some of the projects that they had linkages to build the capacity we needed to move this organization from being just a little thing on Village Road to what I'm very proud of as an organization that went from seven, eight, nine, ten staff to more than 70 staff across seven or eight islands um, uh, doing incredible work. You know, when I joined the BNT, there was one single discovery club you know, Porsche, uh, with guidance from people like Lynn and people like Monique Sweeting, uh, who worked with us back then, have built Discovery Club, which is our youth environmental education program to where we now have, you know, 60, 70 clubs spread across the archipelago. So it is a story, uh, as Wolf just uh, commented. 
um, of success. Um, there have been so many people, you know, I mean, you know, it's so interesting when people, as as I've started telling people that, you know, I want to start thinking about transition, you know, people are like, oh, you've done a great job. We've done an incredible job. All of the people, all of our partners, and I think we've built a success that I think, I hope, you know, helps to underpin the sustainability of these fragile and ephemeral isles. Definitely. Sorry, that was long and boring, but I apologize. No, and I totally, like like Wolf pointed out, I definitely think, and also um, Anselino pointed out as well, knowing this background and knowing this history is the information that people need to hear, because I don't think a lot of people understand how quickly, like you said, the BNT had to grow to get to the place it is mm-hmm. now and how much more it still needs to grow to meet its mandate. You know, I, I was only there for about three years, and I always used to say, wow, like, this grew fast, and it still needs to grow even faster, and so I think letting people know that history and getting them to understand the importance is, is mm-hmm. important. So <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah. And I, I always love when you talk about that because I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of children growing up who wanted to get into science, it was very little opportunity. And so if you look at how it was then and how it is now, it's way more opportunity for people to actually consider the fact that they don't have to be a doctor. They can genuinely say, Hey, I like snakes and I want to mm-hmm. just reptiles they have role yep. models now who are bahamians who are out there doing the work because they had a platform in the bahamas national trust to start from and so you have done a great job eric and if i could toot the horn for you definitely um like i said in one of my times sharing this you are one of the conservation warriors that i had the privilege of of working for and under and with and it's just been it's been great and So (laughs) to the uh, topic at hand today, you know, the Bahamas National Trust is the National Park Management Agency in the Bahamas, but we do have a mixture of different things going Mm -hmm. on in the Bahamas in regards to protected areas in general. I think a lot of people just know the BNT and national parks, but they don't understand the concept of protected areas and national parks. So if you could just quickly give us what's the fundamental difference when people in the Bahamas talk about protected areas and national parks? Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally, you know, when, you know, I remember when I got involved with this and I started understanding something called biodiversity conservation. In fact, there was something called the Convention on Biological Diversity, CBD, out of which came the Jeff to fund this, you know, conservation, out of which came so many aspects of conservation. And I remember back then, in fact, the first conference of the party, so all of the countries that signed on to the Convention on Biological Diversity, the first conference of the parties was in the Bahamas. And I remember back then trying to figure out, well, and I remember reading the convention, the text of the convention, which pretty much said that to save biodiversity, it's all going to be underpinned by protected areas. And I kept asking myself, what are our protected areas? You know, who is our protected area management agency? And so I started digging and started understanding that it was then the Bahamas National Trust. Um, I understood then that there were moves afoot to create marine protected areas to be managed by the Department of Fisheries at the time. 
Um, and and so, so the Bahamas National Trust called all of its units of conservation national parks. That is what we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Biodiversity Convention referenced national parks unprotected areas. And I didn't know what whether there was a difference and what the difference was. Well, there is no real functional difference. The functional unit is a protected area. And a protected area is an area that is set aside by a government uh, that an agency of the government or a non-government organization or a private entity could manage to effect conservation. It could effect the sustainable use of the resources in that area. So back then, it was the Bahamas National Trust that manages nas- that managed national parks like the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park, the oldest land and sea park in the world, or the Inagua National Park, you know. And so the BNT was the protected area management agency back then. But the government started realizing that it had a responsibility within the Department of Marine Resources, the Department of Fisheries at the time, to not only look at exploitation and expanding fisheries, but they realized through the work of people like Eleanor Phillips and actually, you know, people like Lakeisha Anderson and Tamika Ramming and and uh, so many other people that have now moved on to other agencies, but they realized that that agency also needed to be concerned with not only exploiting fisheries, but also protecting fisheries. So the concept of a national network of marine reserves, um, no-take marine reserves, was established in that agency. And so between what the National Trust was doing in its national parks and protected areas, and what was being proposed by the Department of Fisheries at the time, now the Department of Marine Resources, we would have been able to establish a certain percentage of our country, which would have been set aside, not as full no-take zones, but areas for which we could manage the extraction rates, we could manage the impact. Some might have been no-take zones, some would have supported traditional fisheries, some might have... um, limited certain types of fisheries practices would have that would have been able to take place. But they were all um, established units of conservation. Following that, of course, you know, Christopher Russell, who is a highly trained natural resource management professional who was with the government, you know, Chris Russell was pushing for the establishment of the Department of Forestry and uh I remember way back when Chris had a draft forestry act that looked at, again, not only the exploitation of the forestry resources and timbering, but it also included important units of conservation, like conservation forest or research forest. Mm -hmm. Um, Finally, I don't recall when the forestry act was passed into law. But once the Forestry Act was passed into law, then that also established another unit of terrestrial um, protected areas. So the protected area management agencies in the Bahamas are pretty much the Department of Forestry and their forestry reserves and their conservation forests, the Department of Marine Resources, and of course, the Bahamas National Trust. We are fairly unique in that we are a nonprofit, non-government organization, but we are established by law, statutory law, as a statutory, statutory non-government organization charged with the responsibility of managing national parks. 
And that is visionary because the, the, the folks who, 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 who envisioned what we would become realized that we could have a very close relationship with government. We also have the ability to be semi-autonomous. We have the ability to raise significant financial resources so we wouldn't be a complete burden on the public purse. And that has been the unique function of the Bahamas National Trust. So these are the three agencies that have, for the past 60 years, and, uh, you know, of course, the Department of Marine Resources would have started looking at protected areas in the 90s, and then the Department of Forestry in the 2000s. And then fast forward to the present day, you know, of 20, 2019, with the passage of the... Um, Department of Environmental Planning and Protection Act. Yeah. So Rochelle Newbold, who is the um, who is the director of that department, under that department, there is also the ability to establish uh, special areas which could be managed uh, to minimize impact on the environment. And so, collectively across all of these agencies, the objective is to establish these units of conservation managed at different levels whether they are full no-take marine reserves like the Berry Islands is supposed to be or the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park, or whether places like the Andrews Westside National Park, which still allows um, for certain levels of extraction to take place. Right. Uh, so you have the ability to establish um, paradigms of conservation from uh, absolute 100% no-take straight through to nearly as usual and as per normal with minimal um, um, impact on the, the resource user. And as you would know from your work, it really depends on the need. Um, I would say that we probably are going to move towards as a country having to have more restrictions. I know the fishermen don't want to hear that. But if you are going to want to support conservation, because you know, the thing that, that you would have uh, envisioned in, you know, I mean, you, you know, we sent you to Spanish Wells, for Christ's sake, um, you know, to be in a very important and controversial and, and antagonistic uh, meeting. Um, but it is to get even our friends in Spanish Wells that originally may not have been in tune with or supportive of, of protected areas to get them to get on board with the fact that to protect their lifestyle in perpetuity, to ensure that their children and grandchildren will always be able to catch lobster, conch, and snappers that they love, that we're going to have to practice conservation. And so, yes, these difficult conversations are going to have to continue um, you know, I know that, you know, you're, you're committed to this as an ocean warrior, um, wherever, you know, your, your roles will take you in the future, um, whether that brings you back to work with Lakeisha or not. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, but it's a job in the future. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is wherever we are, whether we work for, you know, whether we work with people, you know, like, um, the BNT, or whether we work with important partners like uh, the Perry Institute for Marine Science, you know, people like the distinguished Craig, Craig Dahlgren, who is easily the most um, distinguished and, you know, one of the most active 
uh, marine scientists interested in and involved in conservation in our country. You know, whether you work with um, Brief or Friends of the Environment or the San Salvador Living Jewels, you know, very um, localized conservation organizations. We all are focused on trying to ensure that this unit of conservation that we call the protected area, whether it is, is a marine protected area or a terrestrial area, whether we call them a national park or the uh, Union Creek Marine, Union Creek uh, Reserve, it is all about establishing an area for which we can prescribe conservation um, um, measures that are designed to ensure that our um, marine and terrestrial environment is sustained in perpetuity. Right, definitely. And so I lost this question up so we don't miss it um, from Dr. Davis. The sustainability is a key topic though. How hard is it to sustain protections and what are the challenges and how can we help? Uh, if we don't, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, you go. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's um, I think, We've, we've made some inroads in convincing the government first that protecting the environment is important. And protecting the environment is important uh, for, I guess, two main reasons, protecting the ecology and protecting the economy. So the fishermen in Andrus, South Andrus, you know, who depends on lobster catch, or the fishermen in Spanish wells that depends on lobster catch, if there aren't areas where lobster can exist either unmolested or that they are molested at lower levels, then their way of life will not be sustained. So it hasn't been difficult convincing the government that the future of our country is wholly linked to the environment. The environment is our stock and trade. Right. And so, you know, when we add people like Earl DeVoe on one side of the equation or, you know, or um, the most honorable, you know, I mean, you know, Hubert Ingram, uh, or whether it was, you know, the most honorable, you know, Perry Christie and Brave Davis and Kendra Dorsett, you know, whatever side of the political divide um, it really didn't matter to us because we don't wear blue, we don't wear yellow or red when we go to these meetings. We wear blue and green, right? Uh, we're concerned with the blue and green economy. And we go and we try to convince these decision makers that within the palm of their hand is the ability to make decisions that determine or the that determine a sustainable future or determine that our country is going to be not be sustainable and we're going to be facing serious environmental degradation. And I would say that fortunately, um, fortunately on both sides of the political divide, we have had success in convincing them that the environment is important. You know, whether it was the free national movement of, of your earls and, and, and the Honorable Hubert Ingram, or whether it was, you know, Brave Davis flying with us to San Salvador to declare the San Salvador National Parks. 
We believe that as an organization, we cross the political divide, you know, and the thing that Kazarina McKinney uh, always pushes is, you know, you know, when people are thinking about elections and your member of parliament is coming to you to, to uh, you know, uh, to, to solicit your vote, it's all about your future. It doesn't matter whether they are PLP or FNM. Kazarina says, tell them, what are you going to do to ensure that my, my future is going to be secure? Are you going to support, as she would put, group of conservation in perpetuity? As we would put, are you going to ensure that conservation is going to be a successful program? Are you going to ensure that Bahamians will always be able to enjoy crab and rice because we've protected uh, the crab replenishment area? You know, so, you know, where are we going to ensure that the economy is protected by underpinning and undergirding the ecology on which it depends? Tourism. You know, you know, it was so funny years ago, a, a former minister of tourism, um, Vincent van der Poel Wallace, <clears throat> sent an email out to so many people touting, you know, that Bonaire had won an award for, um, you know, for diving, the quality of their diving, you know, and I... I was so glad that he had copied in a thousand people because I was able to reply all to you know <laughs> a thousand people and say that if you read what they won, they won an award for the quality of their reefs. Yeah. And the quality of their reefs is enhanced because they are protected. And so if we protect nature, nature will protect our future. You know, and that is what we've been preaching, whether it's the BNT or some of our partners that we work with locally or internationally. If we protect nature, nature will indeed protect our future, you know, and indeed getting, oh, sorry, that's a long answer, sorry, that's a long answer for, <laughs> for Lino's question, but um, if you can convince the government that our future is wholly linked to the quality and the extent to which we protect the environment. I am one who I absolutely reject the notion that politicians are absolutely corrupt and politicians are stupid. I reject that notion. I think that people who go into politics um, are brilliant. They go into it for the betterment of our country. And we just need to appeal to the common sense of these brilliant politicians and get them to understand that protecting our environment. I need Donicio Diagula, who spoke yesterday about the fact that people are going to come to the Bahamas. I need people like Minister Diagula to be the spokesperson for the environment, to say that People are going to come to the Bahamas more than they will go to areas where the environment is destroyed because we've protected our environment. I need my good cousin, Joy Gibralo, who is the director of the Director General of Tourism, to continue to support the work of the BNT and the work of the Department of Marine Resources to understand that when the Bahamas wins these international awards, you know, as somebody posted recently, we won. 10 or 15 awards in tourism. But the top award that we won 
was for large animals on reefs. What are these large animals? They are not elephants. They are not tigers or lions or rhinoceri. They are sharks and turtles. So people can go on reefs and see these large animals, and they rate that the reason they will come to the Bahamas to get into the water is because we have protected our large animals. And I know Bahamians have an issue with sharks and, you know, we, we are afraid of sharks as a people, but protecting these large animals and protecting sharks and protecting turtles, protecting the environment generally is what is going to underpin our recovery from COVID. People are going to go, especially to the family islands, because you can get in the water and you can be socially distanced. The mask you have underwater will protect you from COVID and expose you to the most incredible natural beauty that you will ever see. And the reason you will see that is because of the work of organizations like the Bahamas National Trust and the other conservation organizations committed to protecting the environment in these units of conservation that we call protected areas. Right. Yeah, I definitely, the only thing I can add or reinforce rather is that I think a lot of Bahamians, they feel like the government has the power in this situation. And just like you were saying, like Casarino always tells people to do, when your MP comes around asking for your vote, that's your opportunity to let them know what your issues are and your interests are, what you want to see done. So simply ask them, what are you going to do in regards to protecting our natural environment? And if they don't hear that from the people, mm -hmm. then they're not, not going to do it. And I know one of the things that I learned, even just working at BNT and getting out in the communities, was the fact that people don't realize that if they if they have a voice, they can use it. And the government is listening, but no one's Absolutely. saying anything. So they are listening. They are. And they ask us all the time, or BNT and all these other organizations, well, what are the people saying? They don't just you know, take our word for it. What are the people saying? How do the people feel about these things that you want to do? How do the people feel about these protected areas? Do they want an MPA in their backyard? Most oftentimes, community members actually do. But yeah. people aren't vocal, and people aren't helping us push this message. And that's usually why it's, it's harder you know, yeah. to get done. And, um you know, Bahamians, we speak about Aragonite, you know, because somehow someone has been convinced that we have so much Aragonite that we could guarantee every Bahamian $100,000. So it means nobody has to work. I believe it's the most miscommunicated subject area on the planet. And uh, hopefully people like Dr. Jacoya, made, uh, Major, who is a PhD scientist at Morton Bahamas. Hopefully mm -hmm. someone will contract him to write a paper about aragonite and the materials, because that's a big issue. So people are talking about aragonite. Um, we need as many people to talk about conservation generally. You know, I, I again, I would love to understand more about aragonite. I am not an aragonite expert. I want my hundred grand as well, okay? So that's what I'm waiting on. I'm ready to give people my damn account number and say, put it here. That's send my hundred grand here. Mm -hmm. So people talk a lot about that, but we need more people to talk about the other aspects of our natural resources. We need people to talk about the value of coral reefs and the value of 
white crown pigeons, you know, with the value of um, bird watching. Uh, you know, we need people to talk about the value of national parks. We were very pleased, I mean, exceptionally pleased that in the uh, recent um, um, economic recovery report summary, the executive summary, that there is a reference to the value of national parks as a part of our economic recovery. And I've spoken to the chairman, one of the co-chairs of that economic recovery committee who, can, who assures me that there are going to be other references to national parks and their importance as part of the economic recovery. Listen, um, the thing about, you know, I remember, you know, during the early onsets of COVID-19 and people was trying to figure out, people stopped traveling and Atlantis shuttered and Bahamas shuttered, but people were still going to places like the Exuma Park. Unfortunately, initially not enough Bahamians, but eventually a lot of Nasuvians who have a boat more than 26 foot were finding themselves in the feet, 26 feet. Sorry, 26 feet. Uh, we're finding themselves in the Exuma Park. So the non-Bahamians and Bahamians were finding themselves enjoying the solace of the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park. And what um, my colleagues, and I think I saw Elijah signing earlier, um, and others, we've been promoting, uh, you know, is that our national parks are good places to support the economy. So mm -hmm. we're hoping that we can convince the government uh, as they think about investing in capital works to get people employed, the national parks will do two things. Yes, you know, continue to build your sidewalks, but build infrastructure in national parks to help us employ people, which will then create a product for people to come enjoy throughout our archipelago and it will create long-term sustainable jobs long after the sidewalk project has ended. So that is that is what we're pushing, is that the tourism and economic aspects of our national parks, as Rodney Monka would say, are powerful. And they have the ability to help Bahamians to create and sustain, to answer Lin, uh, what the boy name? Lee, Dr. Lino's question, they can be made financially sustainable because they have a lot of value. Right. I think, and as you pointed out, I think a lot of Bahamians and people in general, but we're going we're gonna to stick to the Bahamas right now. A lot mm -hmm. of Bahamians don't understand the value, like you said, of these sharks in our water, even of just our snakes you know, of all of the different animals and plants that we have in our environment in their natural state, because everyone just kind of thinks, oh, it's just like and a mangroves. And that's what we're talking about next episode. But I always disliked, and I'm not going to say hate, but I always disliked when people would just be like, oh, that's just swamp, you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. this is the reason why we have yeah. flooding in particular areas on certain islands, and I'm not going to call them out, every time it rains, because mm -hmm. the government and past people, and I don't want to like, stick on anyone in particular but when you look at these areas as something that we can just take 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 from we lose a lot in the long run and if, if people if people just understood that and, and understood the value of nature for us as people because we are a part of nature then we are more likely to you know have yeah. these long 
benefit. You know, Richard, it's very interesting. Like when you read like a lot of the, when you look at the old Bahamas Ministry of Tourism ads, you know, they talk about sun, sand and sea, but they show people in the water. They show people snorkeling. But somehow they missed the link between the fact that we were doing conservation all these years, right? So um, we've been very fortunate, honestly, um, because of people like, um, you know, Mrs. Jibberloo and, and Tommy, Tommy Thompson, who is the Deputy Director General of Tourism, and Janet Johnson, who is the who is the executive director of the Tourism Development Authority. These, these top tourism professionals have understood the value of the environment, and they have actually started talking to people in the Ministry of Tourism. So as a result, we now are being contacted. <clears throat> and, um, you know, Elijah Sands, who is our communications officer, has been working closely with um, people from tambourine who is our who the ministry of tourism uses for uh promoting creating a product to promote the bahamas you know they did this incredible shoot i remember they had come to us saying oh we want to do something at thunderball grotto around mm-hmm. stanya key and we need our park wardens to help stop keep the people at bay and we said look we will help you to keep people off of uh Thunderbolt Grotto, but you know, just up the road, there happens to be the oldest land and sea park in the world. Mm-hmm. So we will help you if you will bring your film crew there to see the Exuma Park. And it was a fight because they were focused on going to Thunderbolt Grotto, but they knew that we had the the ability, we had authority, and we could keep the tourists off and they could do their shoot. So they initially reluctantly agreed to come to visit the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park. Guess what? They were blown away to the point where they actually then scheduled a full week to come back and they actually came and filmed because they went back and they told their people, we are missing the real beauty of the Exuma Park. I know people love to go on and on about these farm animals um, that people like to go and see, right? Um <laughs> But eventually the farm animals are going to be passe. People aren't going to go and see those pigs. But the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park and the areas around that are benefiting from the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park, the incredible natural beauty, you know, that's what the the tourists are really going to want to go and see. And that's when the value of a place like the Exuma Keys Land and Sea Park. The ecology is well known and well documented. We know that you know, groupers tied in Exuma Park, you find them as far away as Long Island and lobsters, you find them away as, cat, as far away as Cat Island. We know the larval flow that, mm-hmm. that takes, you know, replenish these, these areas. So we know the ecological value, but the economic value is what the people in the Ministry of Tourism and the Ministry of Finance will latch on to. It's what the people in the IDB who we're talking to with now about the blue economy they will understand the value of the national parks and the protected areas to the blue economy. So we're going to continue to push not only ecology, but also the economic benefit. And then to answer that question that Lino asked, the protected areas can actually indeed become financially sustainable 
because mm-hmm. they will have an economic value. Yeah, and I think um, not to, of course, ever discredit Exumakizan and Sea Park. I think a lot of people, Bahamians, tourists, they often don't realize, and I had this conversation over the summer during that little window when we could still go to the beach with someone who was not from the Bahamas, who basically asked, you know, I mean, well, besides the beach, what what else is there to do in the Bahamas? You know, like yeah. after you've done the beach, people don't realize we have cave systems. People don't, under, I've met people here in the UK that have no idea what a blue hole is and that you can find them in the middle of the land and the middle of the ocean. And it's even things like primeval forests. When I take pictures there and people see that, they don't even believe that oh, I'm yeah. so promise. And I think Bahamians take for granted what we have outside of just the beach. We have so mm-hmm. much more to offer, so many unique things, so much history even that if we could just, you know, if we could just look at that and we could understand that these protected areas are doing more than just protecting a beach. Even I saw Elijah said in the comments about the Hutia. I had no idea what a Hutia was. I did not know that we actually had an endemic terrestrial mammal. That blew my mind, you know, and for anyone listening, endemic meaning only found in the Bahamas. And we have so many animals that are like that because I always like to tell people, I feel like we're so similar to the Galapagos. Like we are an archipelago of islands that potentially has a lot of undiscovered creatures still. Like, I mean, we just discovered the silver boa yep. however many years ago, you know, and it's it's these things that people don't realize. And see, even in the comments, I could see nobody knew we had caves. We have cave systems on many different islands, dry and wet caves, right? So protected areas are more than just protecting beaches. They're protecting many habitats, many environments. The Bahamas is a lot more than just that. And to just um, keep on theme, I know I always like to ask my guests to just quickly say their thoughts about the particular topic. How do you think for this topic here, protected areas and national parks are mitigating against climate change? You know, this is such a big dog because climate change is what's causing these superstorms to happen. What do you, what can you tell people um, about protected areas and national parks in regards to climate change? Yeah, so, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to uh, Shelly, Shelly Kant, who's our director of science and policy, who is, in my opinion, along with people like Adele Thomas, Dr. Adele Thomas, um, you know, I think Shelly's one of the most knowledgeable persons on the planet about climate change. And it's because she lives on an island. She lives in a country of islands, low-lying islands, which if we don't reverse you know, the global warming and the resultant sea level rise, you know, it becomes all a moot point. You know, we won't be having this discussion because we'd all be underwater. Um, So there are several things. One, creating national parks and protecting the environment and then telling the international community that this is what we're doing sends a very strong message that we are all about self-survival, that we are trying to protect the units of conservation to ensure that we have intact ecosystems which can mitigate against climate change. It is well known that natural systems and natural areas and intact ecosystems have more natural resilience. They have more ability to be able to sustain negative impact and negative pressure. So these protected areas have the ability to sustain, sorry, to fight against this threat. So they have the ability to be more resilient. And so 
the more protected areas that we have that are well-managed, that are in very good shape, <clears throat> means that we have these units of protection. We have these higher units of resilience. And that's where I think, that's why I think we need to continue to push the protected area system because it has the ability to make us as a country more resilient to uh, climate change. Uh, protected areas also have the abilities to, I guess, help us to adapt to some of the changes that are coming. Um, and I know that, that Shelly and her team are working on a um, coastal zone management project, integrated coastal zone management project as we speak. And a part of it is to look at um, are there ways that we can adapt as a country? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's part of the adaptation, restoring these natural systems that have been degraded. And I know that's something that we're going to be doing is restoring coastlines with um, um, native plants and, 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 and natural systems, restoring tidal creeks in East Grand Bahama and Andrews, et cetera. <clears throat> so the more natural systems we have in place, the better chance we have to fight this animal called climate change. Right. I, for one, believe that we will not be able to prevent any change. I think we will definitely, because of the fact that so many developed countries, so many industrial countries, you know, in fact, there's a little country west of us, uh, you know, that withdrew from the Paris Accord, um, which took that country back tremendously from some of the obligations that probably would have set a a huge standard globally. And I don't know what's going to happen Tuesday night um, and whether an individual is going to be elected who may take the U.S. back towards more sensible approaches to climate change. Right. Um, but that's important for the Bahamas. But for us having to be able to demonstrate as a country that we are doing all we can to protect our natural systems. You know, we, we released, our organization released not too long ago, a statement on, on the uh, proposed oil drilling, mm -hmm. um, you know, pretty close to one of our protected areas, um, the Kisal protected area. And, you know, there's a huge debate raging right now as to whether or not engaging in, you know, moving forward with exploring the potential for fossil fuels is sending the right message or whether we are sending a mixed message to the world. And this was the point we made in our press releases that successive governments and successive leaders of our government have gone to the UN and said, we are the most vulnerable country on the planet. And we are, well, certainly in the Americas, we are one of the most vulnerable on the planet. And as a result, we should be looking at sustainable approaches to economic development. And so, you know, this debate that is raging about fossil fuels and Bahamas Petroleum, you know, is something that Bahamians really need to get excited about and they need to make their voices heard. They need to give send it. You know, if you talk about what we should be talking about, whether it's protected areas or not, Bahamians need to be letting the government know what they feel about oil exploration. And, they, and it needs to be said based on, 
you know, not just sheer emotion of I don't like oil or I like oil. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it needs to be a very well thought out position on I don't support this because it threatens my future or I support it because it can help to underpin our future. Whatever side you take, uh, but most of us here are likely going to be going towards um, it doesn't mesh with what we're telling the planet. Uh, but yes, there's an opportunity for Bahamians to not to talk about not only protected areas, but to talk about and express their view on oil and yeah. other natural resources and how they should be exploited in our country. Yeah, which goes back to what we were saying earlier. I think a lot of Bahamians take for granted the power that they have oh, yeah. when it comes to these decisions being made. If we don't make noise, if we don't say something, then at the end of the day, when you look back in history, it'll show it will look as if this was something that we were all in favor of. You know, and yeah. like you said, I didn't even think about the fact that it it kind of goes against what we're seeing in regards to us being so vulnerable. And now here we are doing something, you know, and I think that, and again, to quote Rodney Munker, right, powerful. And I don't think, I just feel like I, one of the things that even just for this show, I wanted people to, under, to to watch and to understand once you have this knowledge and once you understand what you can do with this knowledge to take that and use the power that you have, like we can, advocate for change in many different things if we just use our voice for that. Um, but yeah, so there's protected areas have a lot of a lot of P's of promise, purpose, mm-hmm. potential, power, like protected areas. And as anyone who may know me, I'm extremely for marine protected areas. <laughs> so gotcha. I know saw Haley earlier in the comments saying we definitely Yes, the more the merrier. And I think once people understand that uh, marine protected area doesn't always mean no take, then that's great. It means <clears throat> things. Um, I mean, that's great. And, I, and that's important, Nishanti. And I think, you know, going forward, you know, for people like yourself, you know, with the ability to spread messaging, um, again, you were literally, you know, not me, Lakeisha, sent you um, to Spanish Wells um for baptism by fire but i th- i think it was a very i think it was important to, to get that view because you know i mean lakeisha experienced the same thing and david and you know in walker's key in grand key where <laughs> oh you were there too sorry <laughs> but it's, um you know messaging to especially fishermen is really important i think if there's some, if, if there's a an area where we failed, whether it's a scientist or conservationist, and you know that your time with BNT, the one person I wanted to really have on my staff or in my arsenal was a a very effective social scientist who could get into those communities mm-hmm. and listen to the fishermen because. Oftentimes, when we go as scientists, we hear, but I'm not sure we make that absolute connection. And I remember uh, there was a guy from the Nature Conservancy, I forget his name, um, who was a social scientist, but he was so effective at um, convincing the communities, the stakeholders of the value of the stake, really, stakeholders, the stake that they had. Mm-hmm. in the discussion and 
I think if there's something that we can do better, all of us uh, as brilliant scientists, is to be able to better understand and listen to what the community is saying. Because if we don't, then we really miss the opportunity. I really believe that Bahamian fishermen understand fully conservation. Of course, our Bahamian fishermen, you know, and I have a lot of discussion with some of my Bahamian fishermen colleagues from Spanish Wells or Andres or Abaco, um, you know, a huge issue they have is this poaching. Um, and they say, you know, Eric, you all have to do a better job as an organization, the National Trust, in getting the dialogue elevated. And I think we've done a, a really good job of elevating the dialogue. But I think if we can really convince the fishermen that we are all disgusted by the scourge that poaching is, especially by the Dominicanos, but also by those that come from Florida um, and, and, and pillage and, and, and take huge amounts of catch illegally. I think if we can convince our fishermen that we are on their side and we are pushing that case, uh, I think the fishermen understand conservation. They understand the value of protected areas. Not all, but a lot of them, you know, when they, you know, when I have the one-on-ones with them and they're cussing me out at the bar, they said, Eric, I understand, but until you all get these damn Dominicanos out of our country who are here illegally or, or range marriages or whether you're able to stop them from coming in with bad enforcement or whether you're able to stop the Americans who are coming in for these weekend trips. So they understand, but they, they want us, all of us in the environmental and, and, and the conservation arena to be better spokespersons and better proponents of a stronger push by the government. Now, I would say that the current Minister of Agriculture and Marine Resources, my good friend, Michael Pintard, you know, Honorable Michael Pintard, he is absolutely against poaching. He wants to see it wiped out. And I I would say that without any fear of contradiction that Mike has, Minister Pintard has been the most vocal and effective and adamant minister to try and stamp out the scourge of poaching. And so that's why, you know, Shanique and I and, and Marcia from an H Conservancy and Natalie from an H Conservancy, Lakeisha from our side, you before you went rogue and left us. Um, <laughs> all of us have been committed to supporting Minister Pintard because they need to understand that, that we in our side of the fence, the, the conservation side, the NGO side, while at times we may actually be not completely aligned with the government objectives, in this we are completely aligned and in this we offer, and we must offer the government our full support. Definitely. Um, it's, it's, it's also, like you were saying, it's very important to understand um, there is a gap and the Bahamas National Trust, along <clears throat> with organizations, have been slowly but surely closing that gap between the conservationists and scientists and the fishermen and community members and and just by human nature you know like when you're just into different disciplines and you you have two different focuses it just naturally there is this missing link so definitely it's been good it's been getting better and i i think there's a promising future for that i think a lot of fishermen are starting to get it 
more from where we're coming from and we're starting to have them open up more about where they're coming from. And once we get those commonalities going, then that's a surefire way to have success. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I know there are a couple questions. Um, I know the first one was asking about tours in regards to the national parks. Uh, are the tours for the parks local? Okay, are they organized by the BNT or the Ministry of Tourism um, or locals? I guess that depends on the island. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Depends so, on the island. Um, so, actually, we just signed an agreement uh, just this week with um, a tour company out of New Providence, hoping for the return of cruise tourism. Mm -hmm. um, um, and they are looking to bring uh, visitors to two of our national parks uh, in New Providence, Primeval and the Retreat. Um, yeah, sorry. A lot, I know, I know. Um, so tour operators, you know, we encourage tour operators. In Andres, uh, we've worked, and in Agua, We've worked with the Ministry of Tourism and National Audubon to train qualified, certified bird tourism, nature tourism experts. So we, the National Trust, our preference is for local people or private individuals to bring tours to the park because we really want to spread the dollar as far and wide as we can. I mean, there are some very exclusive tours because of the nature of, you know, taking someone into a very sensitive area that we might, we might control that, you know, we might, as an example, into a flamingo rookery um, where we might allow people to take a glimpse of it. That one would probably be controlled by, um, you know, I mean, what's the guy named in, uh, uh, in Alga? I mean, he'll shoot you if you tried to get into his rookery, you know. Um, so he, he would definitely, um, you know, if I send someone there, Henry Nixon would call me and, and cuss me out and ask me, you crazy? I'm not sending, I'm not letting anybody go in there because I need to control because it's a sensitive area. So for places like that, Henry Nixon might control who and he might insist that he takes people into a very sensitive area. You know, Steve Smith and Andres might take people into certain parts of, you know, the Andres National Park system. Yeah. And, you know, we might, as an example, work with people like Craig Dahlgren to take people into particular, particularly, or Haley Joe, into particularly sensitive areas of a national park system. Uh, but generally, the preference is for local people and local tour operators to execute those tours. All right. So this next question is asking about something that was recently in the news. Um, cruise ships dragging anchors in the Berry Islands. Was this in a protected area? <clears throat> so it was not. Thank you for the question. It was not in a protected area. Um, it was close enough to propose protected areas. Um, Mm -hmm. um, it was not in a protected area, but it shouldn't matter. I mean, I'm sure, um, Miss and I, Miss Sawyer Jupp, whatever, whatever, Jupp, that's a weird name, might, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure she would agree with me that it doesn't matter if it's in a protected, it's a very good question, but whether or not, um, 
the the view held by us and the government, quite frankly, is that they should be made to be accountable. Um, and I, I, I think um, that it really highlighted. If this, I always look for um, silver linings in these things. And if I think there's a silver lining that came out of that, it is highlighting that these boats are anchoring in our country. So yes, this was COVID-19 special anchorage and blah, 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 et cetera. But around, you know, Princess Keys or other private islands, these cruise ships drop these anchors the size of a bus with a chain. And if you go and you look at these areas, you will see where there's a huge circular swat as the ship swings, destroying seagrass is commonly where they anchor. Um, so it highlights that as a country, we need to do a better job. These cruise ships need to be putting, they need to fund the installation of proper moorings that can hold those cruise ships right. where then the, the mooring attachment floats above the seabed so that when the, swip, the ship swings, there's no damage to the seabed. And I know that's something that, I know Kazarina has actually talked about this because she has seen this at a couple of areas where these cruise ship anchors. Yeah. So this has highlighted, and I know the BNT and organizations like Brief are going to use this incident to encourage the cruise ships that if you want to continue to use our country and our marine environment, you have to be responsible um, in how you use it. Right. Yeah, I think actually, I don't know why, but prior to this, I had no idea that cruise ships anywhere had dropped anchor on the ground. Like I always imagined it was kind of like how in New Providence, they have their set areas to pull up and park, dock, not park. Sorry for all the boaters watching, my bad. These boats. And so to find that out and to hear that it's happening in more areas than just that, it's, it's actually really devastating that it's been going on that long because, you know, cruise ship tourists are very popular in the Bahamas um, for many different reasons. And but I'm going to stray away from the cruise ship topic just because I know that'll start spiraling into the comments. But I do, um, I do think that in every dark cloud, right, there is a silver lining. So hopefully this can bring the awareness needed. Um, but yeah, so it looks like we're coming to the end. I don't see any other questions. Yay. But I do just have a few things that I'd like you to tell the people, like for one, <clears throat> how Canadians help the BNT. What can an average Bahamian do to help the Bahamas National Trust in all its great work? So yeah, I mean, obviously, as as a nonprofit, the BNT depends on the goodwill of of um, donors, and whether that's a um, thirty dollar membership that you can take out, so you can go to bnt.bs, join, and you can take out a single membership for thirty bucks or a family membership starting at fifty. And so you can become a member of the organization. So that does two things. It, it allows you to buy in into conservation, but it then gives you access to all of the work that we do. You become then um, part of, you then get locked into our communication system. And so Elijah and Anna will start, and Raquel will start sending you information about our great work. Uh, you can go and make a one-time donation if you wish. If you don't, you know, if you don't want to become a member and you have, you know, you just want to don't make a donation, you can go and make a donation. Um, and you know, donations go from a dollar up to as many figure, many zeros as you want. Um, you know, 
our budget is five and a half million dollars a year, and the government currently gives us about 1.5. So we need to raise a lot of money, you know, over three million dollars every year, and so every dollar counts. So you can uh, donate, or you can, if you work for a company, you can actually let them become a corporate member, or you can let them be a corporate sponsor. So. You know, money is the best way to say we love UBNT and we appreciate your work. If you don't have funding, you can certainly volunteer. We have good opportunities uh, to volunteer in, in our national parks, in our gift shops, or our education programs, um, you know, et cetera, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And if you don't like the BNT because you don't like whatever, <laughs> then you know support another organization you know because we all are committed to the same thing it's ensuring the sustainability of our natural environment right and i know you guys um i saw two job vacancies so if anyone out there is listening you know you can maybe even see get how a you've gone from saying you got from you're saying we to you guys wow i gotta send a note to lakeisha um so yeah we do have job vacancies right now there are two job vacancies available uh, one relates to uh, an avian but bird, terrestrial um, science officer uh, for some work in Andrus. And then there's an integrated coastal zone management uh, project manager. Um, that's going to be uh, managing a project that we're working with the Ministry of Works funded by the IDP in both um, in Andrus and um, Grand Bahama. So those are two very hey, excellent opportunities uh, for Bahamians to get involved and be a part of the BNT. Definitely. And just to throw out there, to work at the Bahamas National Trust, I know we, we've been saying a lot about these um, more higher level positions. Obviously not right now because COVID, but I always like to encourage people when they hear me talk about working in the industry is that you don't always have to go out and get a degree. You can get trained in something very technical. And I know specifically like with something with BNT, you can get trained in taking surveys, whether that be underwater, above water. You can. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways you can get involved and help and work at the Bahamas National Trust and have a significant contribution to the scientific work and mm -hmm. any other areas of work that are um, available in regards yeah. to contribution. Absolutely. And they're also, you know, Rochelle Newbold, who's the director of the Department of Environment and Planning. Uh, that department also has a, a, a number of opportunities that they regularly advertise. So I would encourage you to, to check with that department. Um, a lot of the work that Rochelle and her team does supports the work of the BNT and other agencies. So between what we're offering and what's available at uh, uh, BNT, also, also, um, you know, there are organizations like PIMS that sometimes come and poach people and provide good opportunities uh, for people to work with them because they do great conservation and education work. Brief also has opportunities for engagement. So I would encourage people to check the websites and the face and, and the social media pages of all of our organizations because you know, the thing I, I would say this, Shanti, to end is that, you know, when we started this, Eleanor and I, people, honestly, people used to come to us and say, oh, I want to study marine science. And I used to generally tell them, you need to go study medicine because you ain't going to find no damn job because he ain't nothing for you to do in this area. And that was honesty because, you know, there was might have been one job at the BNT. And that was it. 
there were no real jobs in government. Uh, there, you know, deep, you know, best maybe might have been hiring one consultant. You know, now it's a whole different ballgame. Now, myself, you, others can say to young Bahamians, this is a field that you can very comfortably pursue um, study in because there are opportunities for rewarding uh, both emotionally, not so much financially, but very emotionally. You get you a couple of dollars, uh, but 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 there are there are credible jobs available in this field, and I encourage as many Bahamians as possible to um, you know to to stay in touch with us. I also. Now that you said to throw it in, Bahamians of all ages, because you know you have the Discovery Club program, mm -hmm. Bahamas National Trust runs internships and other organizations do internships. Mm -hmm. I know if I had a chance to go back and do it again, I would have definitely done the Leon Levy Native Plant Preserve mm -hmm. internship and the Bahamas National Trust one because they both give you unique opportunities and experiences. And and they actually, it's almost like a, a taste test for you to kind of figure out if this is really what you want to do. So please guys, follow the Bahamas National Trust page get in touch with all their partners and them and figure out what you can do in what stage of your life to figure out if you're actually supposed to be in conservation because it is a passion yep. job. You get your couple of dollars, like Eric says, but if you have a passion for the environment, then you can definitely find somewhere to be now. Thanks we for- We pay you competitively. Yeah, I think, I think we do in all seriousness. I think we provide credible- Investment yeah. banker though, or some top lawyer, like they're the ones who are just sitting and making bank. We gotta work hard. Yep. <clears throat> A lot of them unemployed. Yikes. But yeah, so this is, this is the time for final thoughts. I know you just gave a couple words. Um, did you have anything else that you'd want to add for any of the Bahamian people out there listening? I mean, the, the environment is our stock in trade. That's what we have. And whether it's for uh, tourism, um, whether it's for fisheries, it all depends on the environment. And so protecting the environment is not an option. You know, this is not something that the freaks do, the environmental freaks. Uh, this is something that is real. If we protect nature, nature will ensure our future. And that's, that is what we're all about. But I want to thank you for having me. I want to thank you for coming. I was actually going to busy you might not want to come on this show on a sunday afternoon you know but no people like you are really important voices for the environment and um i could have found something better to do i'm sure um but i don't regret i do not regret having come and spend this time with you it's always a pleasure uh you know that i'm one of your greatest fans since the day that you accosted me in Dolphin Encounters um, Terminal, tell me you wanted to work for the BNT, and you will. Uh, and you did. And, uh, you know, you, you, you came and you did a great contribution to the BNT. And, you know, that's what it's all about, just making your contribution. That's all yeah. we do. Maybe in a decade, I'll, I'll be executive director, you know. Stay in touch. We'll see. To be determined, to be continued on the next episode of Dragon Ball Z, right? But Absolutely. thank you for everyone tuning in. Please, please, please remember, as an island nation, it is not the water that separates us. It's what connects us. Guys, take care of what we have so it can take care of us. All the best. Thanks for tuning in to Siren Sunday. See you next week. Take care. Good luck. Bye-bye.